We've been in a, a series in Exodus for a while now, for the last several weeks, um, called Deliverance. And this whole entire year, actually, we're cultivating intimacy with God. We're looking at uh, the book of Exodus to, to see and explore what it looks like to live in intimacy with God, to cultivate intimacy with God. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One will be brought to you. You can take it home and start reading it. Uh, read the rest of Exodus because you only have a couple chapters left and you can say you read the book. Um, part of the exploration is that we're studying Exodus uh, in this series so that, I mean, the whole point of Exodus, right, is that God would live with his people, that God is recreating the world. Exodus is like a recreation story. It's like Genesis all over again. And God is radically reorienting the world and radically calling Israel to be close to him in intimacy and fellowship. He actually wants to move in with them. In a couple of chapters, he will literally move in with them in the creation of the tabernacle. So today, I want to talk about the famous story of the golden calf, right? So Exodus chapter 32, this morning will be more of a devotional teaching, meaning I won't do that much expository work uh, in our text because chapters 32, 33, and 34 form a, like a, um, a narrative unit that unless we do the whole thing, I, I doesn't really, we can't really do chapter 32 justice. And so I'll read chapter 32. I want to do just a, a shorter devotional teaching on something I feel like God is um, leading me to talk about and to say and to, and to share. And, uh, and then next week, we'll try to look at the whole thing as a whole with some background uh, from this week in mind. Is that cool? Are we? Great, because that's what we're going to do no matter what, what you say. <laughs> Uh, let me just read all of chapter 32 because it's, I'm calling today, so I don't really tell you hardly ever the, the title of the sermon, but today I think it fits in the sense before I read it because this is a, a tragic comedy. This is a tragic comedy. Tragic comedy. That's what's going on in chapter 32. So I'm just going to read it and then I'll pray. Um, up to this point, Moses is gone for 40 days up on a mountain um, and uh, Israel is just waiting for him. They said, I'll be right back. Um, this was right after the Ten Commandments were given. This is after Israel said yes to everything God said that, that they're supposed to do. And so Moses is up there, 40 days. And when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, this guy, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them and said, okay, take off your gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters were wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they had handed him and made it into an idol. You guys remember the Ten Commandments? Like they literally just got? Like the day, 40 days before this, right? So he took what he handed them and made an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, and fashion it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's funny if it wasn't so sad. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow we will have a festival to Yahweh. We're actually going to worship Yahweh through this calf. So the next day the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down and ate and they drank and they got up to indulge in revelry. There's sexual overtones here, by the way. When the Lord said to Moses, the Lord, now God and Moses are up on the mountain together. And the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people, your people. <laughs> this is a great parenting trick here. 
Your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked, they're stubborn. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I'll make you into a great nation. We're going to keep this whole salvation program going, but we're just not going to use them anymore. That's what God is saying to Moses. I'm going to, I'm going to make you a different people now. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? Remember, they're your people whom you brought out of Egypt with your power and your mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them out off the, off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants and all his land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented, and he did not bring his people to the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. He's holding these two tablets that God inscribed on front and back with his own finger. And the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise from the people shouting, because Joshua was waiting kind of by the foot of the mountain for Moses, when, he, when they met, Joshua said, there's a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned exactly the same way God did, by the way. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and he broke them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Symbolic of breaking the law. And he took the calf of the people he had made and that they had made and he burned it in the fire and he ground it to powder. powder. He scattered it in the water and made the Israelites drink it. And he said to Aaron, Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such, into, it's literally read in, in Hebrew, into the great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. <laughs> they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and then out came this calf. <laughs> it's, it's such a great story. Moses saw that the people were running wild and Aaron had led them out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth to the camp, one from one end to the other, killing his brother and his friend and his neighbor. Completely the undoing of the Ten Commandments, by the way. And the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed the great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what great sin these people have committed. You were right. And they have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. If not, then blot me out of the book you have written. In other words, take my life. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. By the way, this is the introduction to everything that follows in chapter 33 and 34. But that's where we're at today. There's going to be a lot more questions and answers by the end of the sermon, by the way. But let me pray right now that God will give you peace regardless. Lord, thank you for uh, the truth of the scriptures. Thank you that this tragic comedy is funny because it's seriously all of us. I laugh because I see myself in this text all over. Not the Moses part either, the Israel part. And I see the temptation and I know that we all face this. And Lord, so I pray that you would give us uh, an ease of spirit to, to like lean into the things that we're, that you're like by your spirit are bringing to the surface, things that we've been wrestling with, struggling with God. And you'd be able to, in a righteous and holy way, deal with us. That's what we pray. That's what I pray. Anoint me, Lord, um, today. I need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this story is uh, one of the most famous and well-known stories in the Exodus narrative. This story is the epitome of a tragic comedy, also known as, known as a dramedy, if you know about this genre of, like, of, of film. Wes Anderson's very famous about, about making tragic comedies. Coen brothers are pros at this genre as well. A tragic comedy is this. A tragic comedy is a mix of lighter and darker material that uses humor to lighten the tension and drama as a way to show the audience that something serious is going on. That's what a, a tragic comedy is. It uses both drama and comedy to lighten and both hit you with a punch of like something serious is happening. Now, obviously, the Hebrew writers of Exodus, or writer or writers, some 5,000 years ago, didn't know what a tragic comedy was, but the story fits right into this genre because this story is tragic. It's Israel cheating on God on their honeymoon. They're literally on a honeymoon with God, and they've cheated on him. The story is also a comedy because Aaron is telling Israel that this golden calf he made with his own hands is actually the God who led them out of Egypt. He pulls the calf up and goes, this is actually the God who led you out of Egypt. Everybody's like, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> and then when he gets caught, he tells Moses he threw gold in the fire and then this like golden calf walked out. Like he's basically saying, it's like the Red Sea all over again, Moses. You were gone and like God did this crazy thing with this calf. Now, if the tragic comedy's mixture of drama and humor are there to show us something that serious is going on, this story does it brilliantly. Because the background to Exodus 32 is that Israel is on their honeymoon with God. Let me explain this a little bit to you. Let's back up to chapter 19. This is what it says in chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. If you remember this from like four weeks ago. And how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and if you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. And these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay, so this is what Moses goes and says to the Israelites. God said that if you keep his covenant, you're going to be a special people. What do you say? Look at what they say in verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people responded together. This is all Israel. They said, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their 
answer back to the Lord. See, what's happening here is this is an engagement. This is an engagement and a wedding ceremony all at once. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God is marrying Israel. But first, God takes a knee. God is saying, I have initiated my love towards you. I have gone pretty far in saving you. You were helpless and I helped. You were helpless and cried out for help and I came to your rescue. And I remembered the covenant that I made to your forefathers. And I, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, I saved you. And now I want to live with you. I want to live among you. I want to make this world right with you. You and me, we're going to make this world right. What do you say? And they said, we do. See, marriage and fidelity are powerful metaphors that the Bible uses often to portray Israel's relationship with God and later on, after Jesus, the church's relationship with God. And so God says, what do you say? These are all the commands that I lay before you. This is how we're going to make the world right. This is how you will become a people that lives into my covenant. You will be a people in a culture that sets the world right, right in these ways to show what I am like in the world. What do you say? And they say, we do. Okay, then, well, here are the vows. You shall have no other gods. Okay, and then the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are actually, they look like wedding vows. They're written like vows. You will be this, you'll be that. I do, I do, I do, all the way down. So what happens right after the Ten Commandments? Look at Exodus chapter 24, verses 4. He got up early the next morning. Moses built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered an offering and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. Now, when, I, when you read book of the covenant, read, think of it like this. He took the, the, the wedding vows and he read it to the people and they responded. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Read it like this. I do. That's how it's supposed to be. That, that, this is what this, and Ketchy's getting ready for her wedding. She gets married soon. <laughs> you got a few months. Okay. okay. All right. So, so that's, that's how this reads. Moses then took the blood and he sprinkled on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What this means, a blood covenant means, this cannot be broken. You're vowing yourself to Yahweh. Do not break your covenant. It's a blood covenant. If you break it, you shall die. That's what this says. Till death do you part. Then, okay, then look, skip down. That's, that's, this is a marriage, right? Okay, but then there's a honeymoon. Look, look at this. Look at chapter 24, same chapter, verse 13. Then Moses set out with Joshua at his side, <clears throat> at his aid, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. <clears throat> he said to the elders, wait here until we come back to you. Wait here. Aaron and Hur are with you, and any, anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. And to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like the consuming fire on top. So Israel was still camped on the base of the mountain. When they looked up, they saw this, the mountain was on fire. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so this is like the, the honeymoon, right? So Moses is with God on the mountain and the people of Israel who just said, I do to God, are at the base of the mountain and they're there waiting for Moses. So 
Moses, what, Mo, what happens is he goes up to the mountain, talks with God, and he gets instructions for the tabernacle. Okay, so when he's up there from chapters 24 all the way to 32, which we just read today, Moses is getting instructions for the house that they're going to build together. God's like, I want you to build a house and I'm going to live there. And I'm going to live in your midst. And this is, what, this is what the house is supposed to look like. These are all the instructions to the tabernacle. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. It's like God is giving Moses instructions for the house they will build together. And Moses is up there 40 days. Meanwhile, as they're up there, verse 30, chapter 32, what we just read happens. When they saw that Moses did not come down for 40 days, they gathered around Aaron. They said, make us gods that will go before us. This guy, Moses, we haven't seen him in like 40 days. We think he's dead. We don't know what happened to him. So make us a God. Now, this is, this is basically all of that background. So, so this is kind of what I want, what I want to share. I want to, I want to talk about, I just want to stay in verse 1, chapter 32, verse 1. What happens when people have to wait? This is the tragic comedy. What happens when you have to wait for God? What happens when you have to wait for God and he's silent for like 40 days or like four months or like four years? What happens then? In May, just a couple months ago, Ashley and I found out that we're pregnant. And if you guys know our story, thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah. If you guys it's, uh, know our story, it's been um, a long road, a very, very long road. Um, and what I'm about to share here is our story. I hope this story is not triggering at all to anyone. Um, it's not a perfect story. It's just our story. So this is, this is, um, this is it. This, it's been a long road, uh, 14 years of wanting to have children, the desire, the longing, the heartache, the pain, um, the hope of having kids one day. Uh, a lot of people had prayed and prophesied over us that we'd have a child. I would have dreams early on in our marriage that we had a baby girl. Um, and 14 years of just nothing, um, nothing in, in regards to that at all. Almost, almost like no hope at all. Um, Part of that story, not all of it, but part of it had to do with um, Ashley had, uh, had, if you don't know this, Ashley had struggled with an eating disorder for the last 14 years. And it developed right when we got married. And like with any addiction, um, it's not just about food and body image. That's like symptom stuff. It's deeper. And I saw it. Uh, married to someone with an addiction, it's really, really, it's difficult for both parties. Um, I saw it ravage her, her mind and her body and almost destroy our marriage. Um, there were parts, that the eating disorder part was really hard for me because I really love food and I thought it's as simple as eat food. Like you just can eat food and it'd be better. And <laughs> that didn't help at all. Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of what we dealt with, see, when you're married, um, it, it's not when someone like develops an addiction when you're married, it's not just about that person. It's about you're one flesh. And I had a lot to do with this as well. 
I was very, very ignorant. Um, eating disorders feed off control and codependence, and we both struggled with both of those things. And, and there was a point where even our marriage was at risk. Um, one of the symptoms of this, this eating disorder was that we couldn't have kids. That was one of the symptoms of it, like physically could not have kids. And so we had thought, well, what we could do um, is we could, uh, we, there's other solutions. We think that we should have a, a, a children, and so let's go through a different route. Let's, let's try adoption. And we thought about this like 11 years ago. And we go down that route, or fertility treatments, which we went down that route as well. And then those things are incredible. I mean, adoption is a metaphor for our salvation. Like, we're called, like we're, the church should be about adoption. Um, so that's a beautiful thing. And so when we were exploring these things, and even fertility treatments, which is an amazing thing as well, God said no. God just straight said no. This was like 11 years ago. God said no, not adoption, not fertility, because this is, this is as clear as I can make out God's voice. And I think the way I hear God's voice is that it's kind of fuzzy, and then through conversation it gets a little bit clearer, and prayer gets a little clearer. So... I think after 11 years of refining it, this is, what, this is what I think God said 11 years ago, is that if fertility or adoption for us at that moment would short-circuit something he was in the process of doing. It would short-circuit it. It would completely hijack this plan that he had. He goes, I need you guys to do, I need you guys to go through this very, very, very difficult wilderness journey of something else. Because if, if, and at, and, through that journey will come this fruit, but it won't come before that. And you need to understand that. And I had, a, I'll be dead honest with you, I had the hardest time with this. Um, a really hard time with this. So much so that when we waited, I did not wait well at all. Um, I was, I, 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 had, I had lived with a lot of uh, bitterness and animosity. Um, I lived with a lot of like making uh, work, this job, uh, the thing that I was proud of um, that, was, that turned out to blow up in my face. And, um, and anything that you, and th by the way, this story is about idolatry. And I'm talking about idolatry if you didn't know that already. Uh, anything that you turn into thing, something ultimate that you worship, like your career or wanting to have a child or wanting to get married or whatever it is, it turns out to just completely destroy you in the inside. And uh, that happened to me. And it happened to Ash as well. And so we waited 11, uh, 12, 13 years, and at times, most of the time, especially the very beginning up to the last few years, we did not wait well. Until Ashley one day decided through conversations and prayer and community that she was going to seek recovery. And that recovery was a long and beautiful road. I cannot be more proud of Ashley in, in going to recovery and rest restoration. Um, I saw her restore and be restored. And it was, yes, praise God. If you've ever walked through addiction recovery, it's a, it's, it's a long, hard road. And this is what I had prayed along a lot. I prayed this, and I, I, I had prayed that God would supernaturally just heal Ashley. One day she'd wake up and be healed. Um, and sometimes God does that. Um, but a lot of the times God walks with us through the long road of recovery. 
sometimes like a 15-year road, right? And so that was, that was our story, a long road of recovery. And then when she was recovered and everything seemed to be almost working, functioning in her body, uh, the fruit of that recovery, what motivated her through recovery is that I'm recovery for, my, for like the future, what God wants to do in our, in our family. Uh, I saw her recover and then nothing happened. And nothing happened, but she kept walking. Uh, if you remember the sermon from a few months ago, she didn't die there. She didn't, she, she, she was there and she was like, oh, everything should be working now, it's not. She just didn't stop and she kept moving forward and moving forward and moving forward. And then one day, one day, boom, just all of a sudden, God's like, all right, it's time now. And, um, and that was it. So, so when Israel has to wait and this long absence of Moses generates anxiety and panic because maybe their contact with God is gone. I get this. Like I, I know this story is pretty gnarly, but I get the, the human element to the story. Like Moses is gone and like we're just sitting around and we still get signs, even though there's signs of God's presence everywhere, they still get manna every morning and quail every night. And there's still a mountain that's on fire literally right there. <laughs> but there's something in the human heart that's like, I, but I, what, if, what if this never happens? Sure, I get these really great signs of God's presence, but what if the thing that I really, really hope for never happens? What if we never get into the promised land? What if Moses never comes back? What if we never move on from here? The things that happen when we wait, those things, I get that. I, the deep, that deep anxiety that sets in, I understand this. The story, this story is very human to me. I read this story and I've been sitting on it for a few weeks now. And I, it's really funny. I think this is one of the funniest stories in Exodus. But it's, it's funny in a human sort of way. I know there are a lot of people in our church who have waited on God for a long time for something. And the wait is absolutely brutal. I won't take that from you. It is brutal. And the temptation, the temptation that happens when you're waiting is real. That temptation is real. I want to I talk about that temptation a little bit. I want to talk about the temptation that happens in your heart, in your soul, in your body when you're waiting for God for something for a long period of time and it doesn't happen. That temptation is real. What was their solution to the waiting? They're sitting there waiting for Moses to come down. He hasn't come down. It's been 40 days. And their temptation was what? Their temptation was to replace God for an available produced substitute. They wanted to replace God for something that was available right then. They wanted to produce some sort of substitute right then. This is our temptation. Always, when we're waiting for something, we're waiting for something from God. You can fill in the blank on whatever it is, all the longings that this entire congregation has, and there's thousands of them. The temptation that always enters in is to produce for ourselves a readily available substitute. To produce in our hearts something that we can just say, well, that will be fine for now. That's fine for now. And I would ask you, well, is it what God wants? I'm like, well, no, maybe not. Is it what God said last? What did God last say to you? Well, not this. But, it's, but you're saying it's here. It's, it's all that I have. 
That's more than I can say about God. It's here, and I don't feel God is here. This is available. I don't feel God is available. And, and that's, that's, that's what I'll do. See, they go to Aaron and say, make us a God who will be available right now to us so we don't have to wait anymore. We don't want to wait any longer. Make us something that we can have right now. And Aaron says, sure, I, I can do that. What kind of God do you have in mind? You want a cute one, a strong one? You want a big one, a small one, a rich one, a nice one? Do you, what, what do you want on it? What do you want from it? And so Aaron makes a golden calf. Now, why does he make a golden calf? Now, bulls were worshipped all over. Um, in Egypt, bulls were worshipped. In Canaan, the land they're about to go into, uh, bulls were worshipped in the form of a god named Baal. But Aaron didn't make a bull. Aaron made a calf. Now, why do you make a calf? Well, there could be all kinds of reasons. No one really knows, but speculation, maybe. He made an approachable version of a bull. <laughs> Bulls are scary. He made a more domesticated, less scary, more cute, more approachable God for Israel. Yeah, that God on the mountain, he's fire. He's scary. This God, he, it's a calf. Who's scared of a calf? You guys, come forward. Touch the calf. Pet the calf. This is your God who led you out of Egypt. The temptation to seek to domesticate God, to bottle him, so he's available to our whims and our wants and our longings immediately is always a temptation when we're waiting for something. I want something more domesticated than God. I, it takes too much faith. God's a little too wild for me. I don't know if I can trust him. I've been waiting for 15 years. I don't know if this thing's going to play out the way I want it to play out. I need, so, I need a God I can manage. A God of our making, that sort of God, could never save us. The God you manage and the God that you manufacture can never save you. The God you manage and the God you manufacture can never challenge you. Can never tell you, no, don't. You need to wait. And it's going to be hard and difficult and you will suffer a lot. But it's for your good. Wait. A God that we can manage will never allow us to participate in the re recreation of the world. See, this God, Yahweh, is recreating the world. And for that to happen, these people have to be able to trust and rely on God, to trust and rely on God in faith. And so I, I really don't want this sermon to resolve. I want to stay here, right here, where, right where this is at. And I want, to, I want it to hang here for a couple of, of seconds. This, this sort of temptation to domesticate God, the, sort of the things that we do when we're waiting for God. The kind of temptation that enters in, the kind of sin that enters into our heart when we're waiting for God. I believe there are some in here that are in this very place this morning. And the temptation is real to replace fidelity to Jesus with a cheap substitute. You know God has called you to wait, to live in um, purity, whether it be uh, sexual purity, um, purity in, in what you are and how you're living your life in your workplace. And it's just, it just, you know, this doesn't work anymore. You know, that kind of stuff like worked when you were in youth group. But not anymore. Now, now that you're in your mid to late 20s, you're like, that stuff doesn't just work, work anymore. I can't wait anymore. No, I'm not waiting anymore, actually. That, that temptation's real. That, that thing you're living with is a real thing.
The fidelity to Jesus to like hold your life in purity and not take a cheap substitute. And I know there's all kinds of excuses that kind of fill, you sound like Aaron. Well, I, 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 just, I, just turn on my, I just turn on my app and it's just this app store just like downloaded this thing. Right? I, I just met this person and the, I thought they were a Christian because they were like, they said God. And, and I, I thought they were Christian. And so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. I, you know, the, you, whatever the thing that you do to like rationalize your, your, your sin, it's a real thing. Like I, I, it's, what Aaron said is funny. But it's also what we do. It's actually what Adam and Eve did in the, in the garden, by the way. Like, why do you, you guys have clothes on? Last time I saw you, you guys were naked. What's going on? Well, I, I mean, the woman that you gave me, she's like, I didn't. Why'd you give her to me? <laughs> she, she made me eat this fruit. I don't. That, that, that sort of thing is what we want to do right now. We want to cover up and hide and like, but let's just bring, let's just bring this out out before God. Let's say, God, we really struggle with waiting for you. Like we have a hard time waiting for you. And we're prone to make all kinds of stupid excuses for it. We're prone for waiting for you for all sorts of things. I think the most, one of the most acute things that I, I see happen in our congregation all the time is waiting for um, a relational fulfillment. That is the thing I, I hear from people more than anything else in this church. Relational fulfillment. Whether it's in the form of I want a spouse or I want my spouse to X, Y, Z or whatever it is. I want relational fulfillment. And those of you that think that married people don't deal with that, yes, we do. <laughs> we all long for the same stuff. We all do. Relational fulfillment. I hear that all the time. And we, in, in, in not wanting to wait, what happens is that we take cheap substitutes. And the substitutes have real consequences because they, they bring death. God wants, and I think, I, I really believe that God wants our attention right now. He wants, church, first of all, I love you. I ser I'm telling you this because I love you. The cheap substitutes that you go after, the, the, the stupid things that you tell yourself, when you know, when you know, um, you know in your heart what the scriptures and what the Holy Spirit is teaching you, and how to live as a follower of Jesus. I mean, in the heart of hearts, you know it. You might want to debate and Google, does the Bible really say this? Like, I know that you want to do that. But like deep down, the spirit of the living God that lives in you, come on. He wants to, I think he wants to warn us to give us a moment to realize that we're, what we're doing and to repent. Like if we're waiting for whatever that resolve is to waiting, like, but that, that thing hasn't happened. That person hasn't come that, this, this, the thing I was hoping for when I moved to San Francisco is not here yet. And we are tempted to take a cheap substitute. I think God just wants to put like a pen and right where we're at right now, like, okay, stop, look at me, look at me. Don't commit the great sin. See, the great sin is, the, is spiritual adultery. The great sin is spiritual adultery. That's why Moses keeps referring to the great sin. That's why there's people that are judged through death. I can't excuse it. That's right there. God judges them through death. Because they took a blood oath, the blood covenant. I, we will not do this. And they do it. I, I can't cover that up. I believe that the temptation is before us today. This temptation of entering into the great sin. Spiritual adultery. Like, like there's no other way of saying this. Like cheating on God. Like, yes, God is 
I love him. I love singing. I love praying. I love what he gives me. But when he puts these parameters on my life and he causes me to wait or tells me to wait, I just don't want to do that. I have my own life plan. Thank you very much. And I think we need to be warned. I think sometimes God needs to square us up and say, be warned. The end is death. And I'm saying this as someone who, who didn't, by God's grace, we got through a, a, a hard season of life. Um, and the temptation was very, very real to commit the great sin. Whether that great sin was um, a marital sin of going, Ash, I don't know if I can do this anymore. That temptation was there. The great sin of me telling God before, God, I don't know if I want to be a pastor anymore. I think, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I can stand in front of people anymore and do this. That, the great sin of walking away from God was there. Like, those things are real, okay? The great sin is there, and I think every single time God, through something that happened in my life, was able to warn me, was able to say, um, wait. You need to wait. And I'm doing something. I'm at work, even though you don't see it. I'm, I'm reminded, I, and I want to leave us with this in James. Um, James says this. When, when you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The temptation is to say, well, God, it's your fault. You took a long time. God is not tempting you. He's not. The thing that's tempting you really is this, like, this evil desire that Satan has like, hijacked and is enticing you with. That's, that's really what's tempting you. And then when your desire actually conceives, by the way, this, the language here is sexual. When your desire sleeps with sin and they, ha they hook up, they have a baby, and it's death. That's, that's the language here. And I think this is a, I mean, it's in, I know it's in the middle of summer, and you're like, whoa, I thought the heavy stuff gets the fall. I know. <laughs> but I, I really believe that this is before, in this text, I believe that God wants to warn us. At the end of the story, Moses says, Lord, forgive them of their sins. And if you won't, just take me, blot me out. And God's like, you're not able to do that. It, even in the law, there is, there, a lot of people think, well, the sacrificial system was broken because it was sacrificing animals and stuff like that. But no, right at the very beginning of the sacrificial system, Moses says, I'll give my life for their life. And God's not, God says, you're not actually able to do that. Later on, there would, be, there would come one that's greater than Moses, Jesus, who actually could give his life for the life of the world. And so I don't want to leave this here in the like, heaviness of, of, of the warning, but the realization that Jesus, whether we've committed this great sin, whether we're tempted to commit this great sin, or whether we're just so tired of waiting, Jesus is our, who, Hebrews says, he always lives to make intercession. You know how Moses was up there and he was like, God, don't, don't kill him. D don't kill him, okay? Remember, remember the promise, right? God's like, okay, I won't. Then he goes down and he comes back up. He's like, okay, can I atone for their sins? My life. God's like, no, you're not, you're not evil. 
They would want, they would come on Jesus who died in our place and then lives, it says, forever to make intercession. So he stands before the throne room of God and through his blood is able to cover all of our sin. And so that when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, meaning he's faithful to what he promised through Jesus and he's just, he's right in doing it. And he forgives us of our sin. And I think he's able to keep that which is committed to him. And so as we, as we close, I, I want to I give three invitations as we close. And I want these to be real tangible things that you connect to. I don't want you to listen to this and just walk away. There's a danger in that. There's a danger in go, oh, pastor, I will consider what you said after I eat a sandwich. <laughs> there's a, there's, I, but, but right now, like, I really believe the Spirit of God is stirring things in your heart and your mind, and you are trying to use all your cerebral sort of intellect to, like, push it out and go, no, that's not how God works. But I really believe right now God is, God is, um, God is stirring some things. So as we pray, would you guys close your eyes? The first, the first, like, invitation I want I want to give you is if you feel in here right now really tempted, you can feel the temptation. You can feel the temptation of, of God is taking too long and you, you are tempted towards this great sin. Would you just lift your head and look at me? Just lift your, your eyes and look at me. If this is the temptation that you're dealing with right now. Thank you. This is your temptation. Okay. Second, if you are right now, you've, you, you know that you're in the midst of the great sin. You know you're sinning. You know that that temptation has given its way over to sin and you are in sin right now. Would you look at me? This one takes a lot of courage, but there is freedom in confession. Thank you. And lastly, if you're just tired, you're just like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of waiting. I don't feel necessarily tempted. I'm just tired. And if you're weary right now, would you look at me? If during that, thank you, if during that, that um, invitation, those one of those three invitations, if you looked at me, and I saw a few, a lot of you, obviously it's kind of dark in here, so I didn't see all of you, but several, a lot of you, I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. I'm going to ask you to either come forward and kneel. There's carpets upstairs and downstairs to take a posture of like, like, here I am, God, I'm not running away anymore. It's kind of hard to run when you're on your knees. Here I am. Or would you come forward for prayer and have someone hear your confession? It doesn't have to be this long, elaborated thing. You can just walk up and say, I was the first person. I'm in I feel a lot of temptation right now. Would you pray for me? It could be, I'm in sin. Would you pray for me? Or it could be, I'm just tired. Would you pray for me? Carpets, prayer. A lot of you looked at me. Don't just walk out of here. 
This is a time where we, I believe the Spirit of God wants to heal, wants to put markers in your life going, on this day, this is when I almost had stumbled, or this is when I was stumbling and I was sinning, but I turned to Jesus as my advocate. And I turned to Jesus for forgiveness. And he started me on a path of recovery of, of new life. Lord Jesus, I pray in your strong and holy name that you, uh, that you would get after us, Lord. Like you desire to live with us in intimacy. Your heart is so broken by sin. Like it's just apparent how heartbroken you are. Thank you that you use language like cheating on our honeymoon to, to get us, to get like our impulses going, to go like, oh, that is actually really bad. I pray that we wouldn't take the blood of Christ for granted. That we wouldn't go, oh, Jesus paid for that. No big deal. I can do that. God, give us a better picture of, don't, don't allow us not to see your blood is cheap. That is such a cheap way of looking at the cross. But Lord, we all need your forgiveness. All of us in here. And so Jesus, I pray that healing would start to happen that freedom would happen through confession. I just, I, I really sense that people are just lying to their friends right now. And they're not telling them what's really going on in their lives. They're not telling them how hard it is. They're not telling them how much sin they're in. And they're lying and they're lying to you as well. You want to release us in freedom. And lies have no part of that. Make us truthful, God. Pray that every single person who confesses that you would forgive them of their sin and forgive them from all of their unrighteousness and cleanse them and set them free. Bring a lightened load to their life. In Jesus' name.